to the rest of you, good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brendan. I am the intern, as <laughs> Pastor Gary loves to call me. For those of you that are new, uh, I'm the intern, so we'll get through this together. Um, this morning, we're going to continue in Galatians chapter 4, continue our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we've been doing for the last several months. And we're going to pick up, as we read this morning in Galatians chapter 4, with the first seven verses. And I know that this weekend is a very exciting weekend for football, so I know I've got borrowed time this morning. Many of us are excited to go watch Taylor Swift, I mean the Chiefs, this weekend. Forgive me. But in his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore recounts of the story when him and his wife went over to Russia to adopt their two boys. And in it, he writes the following. When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, where we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of each day was painful, but leaving them the final day, before going home to wait for the paperwork to go through, was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears of her own. I turned around to walk back into their room just for a minute. I placed my hand on both of their heads and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun, they had never felt the wind, they had never heard the sound of a car door slamming, or felt like they were being carried along a road at 100 miles an hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents, and cousins and playmates, McDonald's, Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid. They had no other reference point. It was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was their new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage, and I see myself there. It's a very touching story and a beautiful reminder and picture of just how wonderful adoption can be, even from a worldly perspective. It really is a beautiful picture. And this morning, we're going to hone in on that topic. We're going to focus in on the concept of adoption, 
not just from a worldly perspective. Paul is going to show us that we, as followers of Christ, yes, we've been justified before God. We stand before him and we are deemed right because of what he's done. But even more than that, we are adopted. And this is a a topic that many Christian churches in America, many Christians either misunderstand or neglect in their walks with the Lord. But it's a topic that has tremendous value in our lives and can tremendously impact the way that we go about living our life, interpreting the world around us, and loving our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and the gift that we have this morning to get together just with brothers and sisters and just to worship you. To worship what you've done in creating your world, creating us, and specifically to worship you for redeeming us, for forgiving us of the sins that we've committed against you and adopting us into your family. And so, Lord, as we hear from your word this morning, we just ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, help us to understand what it is that it means to be adopted into your family. And, Lord, we ask that as we go from this place, that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to live out our lives in this identity as sons and daughters of you and be a light in this fallen world. So, Lord, we need your help this morning. We ask that you would illuminate us, help us to receive what you want for us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember the main argument that Paul is making here in the book of Galatians, the the overarching theme of this entire letter, I mean, it's the title of our, our sermon series, how to understand, receive, and live out the gospel of grace. See, the Galatian church, they had received the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins through Christ. But in their foolishness, as Paul has reminded us in them, they had started to depart from that message. They had started to adopt rules and regulations and laws and principles that they thought they needed to do in order to maintain their right standing with God. In Galatians 2, Paul explicitly says that a person is not justified by works of the law, but he's justified by through faith. And then he really gets into his argument in Galatians 3, and he just starts asking them all these rhetorical questions, trying to show them how foolish they are by thinking that their works earn their salvation. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? Rhetorical question, obviously by faith. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Rhetorical question, obviously they're being perfected by the Spirit. Did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by faith? Rhetorical question, faith. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It goes on to say that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that the law was given to us because of the transgression, because of our sin. The law acts as our guider, our guardian until the time that Christ comes and redeems us. In Paul's argument last week, we, we learned that Christ actually has an inheritance for us and that the law kind of protects us and guards us and helps us understand his heart and his will so that when we receive that inheritance, we're prepared. 
And I loved this quote. I actually pulled a direct quote from Grant last week when he was talking about the inheritance. He said, won't my boys be better prepared to receive and steward their inheritance when they know my heart and know my will? And that's really what Paul is trying to drive at here. He's trying to remind them of who their father is. He wants them to remember of what he's done for them in their redemption. And in light of that, who that makes them, what their identity is. And even more than that, the inheritance that they have because of all of that. So that's where we're going to go this morning. That's where Paul is going to take us this morning. We're going to see our redemption, our identity, and our inheritance. And I tried really hard to make all of them start with the letter I, but I could not for the life of me. Think of another word for redemption that started with I. So if you think of one, let me know. I'll be happy to change it. But we're going to see our redemption, our inheritance, our our redemption, our identity, and our inheritance. Before we go to Galatians chapter 4, though, I want to turn our attention to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 14, one quick little quote. We're going to cherry pick it right out of there. Numbers 14, verse 4. They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And you cherry pick that. Nothing seems all that wrong about what that says. But if you know the context of that, you know that the Israelites had just spent 430 years in slavery in Egypt. And God had sent plagues and sent all of this wonderful work to redeem them, to rescue them and capture them out of slavery. And here they are, not long after, wanting to go right back to what they know. So if you're not convinced this morning that you have this same tendency, I'm sure Paul will remind you of that. Just like the kids in the story, the orphans, when you grow up knowing and understanding a certain way of life, even if you get brought into a much better, much more glorious, much more gracious reality, you're still going to have that tendency, that temptation to reach back like those kids, to go back into your old ways, to go back to the orphanage, no matter how dangerous, dark, and scary it might be. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. And consider our redemption. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this is who we were. This is the bondage that we were in. This is our orphanage, their orphanage. This is our captivity in Egypt. This is who we, or what we are tempted to long for and reach back to and go fall into the trap of, into the the captivity of. And we learned last week that the concept of an heir and a guardian and an owner and an inheritor, wealthy families oftentimes, if they had a child who was an heir to the estate, who would inherit the the wealth and the money and everything that the father had accumulated, oftentimes the father would hire a guardian to protect all of that inheritance because the child was too immature to understand and steward and utilize all the gifts that the father had prepared for him. So that father would set aside a date and say, hey, this kid, once he achieves the, or reaches the age of 14, 15, 16, whatever age that might be, that is when he can receive the inheritance. But until that time, he's no different from a slave. 
even though he's the owner of everything, even though he's entitled to own and receive everything that his father had included for him, he was underneath guardians and managers because he was immature and infant and captive under the elementary principles of the world. So he was a child, a slave, even though he was an heir. And Paul doesn't just use this metaphor to speak of some subject that's out there. He brings it in and makes it personal. He says, in the same way, we also, so no one's without excuse here, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world, fancy way of saying anything that you practice, you do, you observe, rituals you do, all of those things that have no power to actually save you, you are enslaved to those apart from Christ. And then he goes on in verse 4 to show the redemption. So though we were slaves, though we, we were captive, God, just like in Egypt, just like in our story with the orphans, God rescues us and adopts us and redeems us. Verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And if you've never spent time asking the question and studying why Jesus came when he did, what about that time in history made it the perfect time for Jesus to come? I'd encourage you to actually study that, even if you're not a nerd like me. There's lots of cool things that you can understand when you you comprehend the context, the, the, the time in history when Jesus actually came. All of the prophecies that lined up to that moment in history. But even more than that, you can think practically the, the concept of Roman peace. There weren't wars going on. There was peace among the earth. There were roads that were just starting to get developed. So that made the travel of the gospel much easier. Before that, there weren't really roads. Travel would be a lot more difficult. The concept of Hellenization, which is just a fancy way of saying the the culture had started to adopt Greek ideas, Greek language, Greek principles. So everything started to have a common hue to it. So there was a common language. At least everyone understood to some degree the language of Greek. So that made the message able to spread even more. There's all kinds of things you can look at, and I'd encourage you to study, see when Christ came, why he came when he did. It was perfect. But God in his wisdom knew that this was the right time, the fullness of time, the date set before from the Father. That time when we, as God's people, were children underneath a guardian. God, in his righteous knowledge and sovereignty, decided this point in history is when I will send my son. And that son was different than you and I, but similar to you and I. That son was born of a woman, just like every other human on this earth, but born of a woman in a way that none of us were, conceived in a way that none of us were. But he was also born under the law, like many of the Jews in that time. So born under the law, just like them, but born under the law in a way not like them, and that he was able to Keep that law perfectly. And he did so for a purpose. He did so to redeem. And the concept of redemption, if you think about it, it's not just taking something and polishing it up a little bit. If you were to go into a grocery store and grab a gallon of milk and give the cashier $10 because of inflation, then you have just effectively redeemed that milk. 
To redeem something involves a transaction, it involves a purchase, it involves a sacrifice of some sort. So Christ, when he came to redeem us, he did not come to just polish us up, to motivate us, to encourage us. Sure, we get all of those benefits through that. But Christ came to redeem us. He came to purchase us, to sacrifice for us, to redeem us as his. And this takes us to our next point. We ask the question, why did he redeem us? And Paul leaves us with the answer at the end of verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So we've been redeemed. We have redemption through Christ. What does that mean for us? It means that we now have a new identity. And this concept of adoption, again, like the story we heard, a lot of times in our culture, when we think of adoption, we think of this very, this rescue mission, this very empathetic Uh, I'm going to save a young child out of a a poverty situation, and it's going to be this happy story, and that's all good and true. But Paul, when he mentions adoption here, includes that, but also so much more. Because adoption in the Greco-Roman culture, it didn't often include adopting a child, a young child. Adoption in that culture often included a wealthy person who was either of age or ill or about to pass on and had no children of their own. They would go and pick an adult son and adopt them into their family, either one, to help them out in their old age, to take care of their estate, or two, to just continue their heritage. And the word that Paul uses here, this Greek word, he's the only one in the New Testament that uses this word. He uses it four or five other times, I think. Romans 8.15 is one of them. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Similar language to what we see here in the text this morning. The word that he uses literally just means to place as a son. To place as a son. It's a legal proceeding that creates this parent-son relationship between two parties. And it doesn't just mean that you're going to be looked at as my son. It doesn't mean that I'm going to now give you the responsibility that I would give a son. It also includes the inheritance, the right to inherit what a normal blood son would inherit. And like I said, the concept of adoption today is very different than the concept of adoption back then. But that doesn't mean that we can understand and and apply some of those concepts to our understanding of adoption as children of God. So we have this identity as sons. We've been adopted, grafted in, brought into the family of God. We now are brought in and given an identity of sons of God. And we also have this inheritance, this privilege, this right as sons. But he also goes further. Verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of His Son. Who is this Spirit? What does He do? 
How do we utilize the Spirit? Is there anything special we can do with the Spirit? Ephesians 1 kind of helps us understand what the Spirit's role is in terms of our adoption, in terms of our inheritance. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, when that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So when we believe in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, the Spirit seals us, Inherit or indwells within us and acts as our guarantee of our inheritance to come. Many people in our culture, many people especially today, misuse and misunderstand the Holy Spirit. And it can be a little intimidating of a subject to address, but it's really not that difficult when you look at what Scripture has to say about the Holy Spirit. The spirit that indwells within us, it's not some mystical force that we say some magic words or do some rituals and we can control and send out in our own way. The spirit is actually God himself, the third person of the Trinity. And what does the spirit do? He intercedes for us. He comforts and convicts us. He's talked about as our, our helper in life. He gives us wisdom to help understand how to interpret and decide things. He helps and intercedes for us in our prayer. So when we pray, if we, even if we pray what we shouldn't pray or we don't know what to pray, it says the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So know that when you're praying, the Spirit is also speaking on your behalf. The Spirit, like we saw in Ephesians 1, it regenerates the believer. So when we come to put our faith in Christ, that Spirit comes and regenerates us. It washes us clean, makes us pure. After that, the Spirit sanctifies us and grows us in our walk with the Lord. The Spirit reveals the truth to us, helps us to make out right from wrong. The Spirit also gives us spiritual gifts that we get to benefit from in the church. And lastly, the Spirit produces fruit in our lives. Galatians 5, we'll get there in the coming weeks, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Some people know songs that they can sing to that. That's what the Spirit does in our lives. And this Spirit, this heart posture, this is the heart of what it means to be a son of God. J.I. Packer is a famous theologian. He's written many books, but in one of his books, Knowing God, he asks the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? I'm sure you guys could answer it a thousand different ways. People throughout history have answered it a million different ways. But J.I. Packer hits the nail on the head and simply says, a Christian is one who knows God as Father. This spirit within us that cries, Abba, Father, that is the true heart of a Christian. The true heart of a Christian is one that cries, Abba, Father. And that word, Abba, Father, that that sweet phrase is a very intimate phrase. It's not like this distant father that reprimands me and I don't know anything about and I don't enjoy fellowship with. This father is an intimate, close relationship that I have who loves me, who cares for me, who adopted me and promises me hope. Charles Spurgeon has a quote 
concerning the, the, the spirit that cries, Abba, Father, within us. Many people, they wonder, oh, I love God, but I don't know if God loves me. How do I know if God loves me? And we'll often go back to our orphanage ways, our, our slavery ways, and say, oh, well, I'm doing this, 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 and this, and that means God must love me. I must be doing good. Or I haven't been doing this. I've really been slacking in my Bible reading. My prayer time kind of stinks right now, so God must not look at me with favor. That's our tendency. That's our tendency. But, but God describes his love for us in a very different way. And it's this, this heart posture, this spirit that cries, Abba, Father, within us that can give us that comfort, to know that he truly does. Spurgeon, in his quote, he says, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. When I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me, never, by any possibility, because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that to love God never did get there without God putting it there. You may rest, you may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. You may conclude with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. No matter how much you love God or how little you love God, if there is that spirit, that heart within you that cries, Abba, Father, if you know God as Father who loves you and cares for you and guides you, then God loves you. He has adopted you. Rest in that. And God could stop there. He could make us right with, in fact, he could, he could just justify us and say, even though you're guilty, you're made right with me, I'll see you in heaven. He could stop there and we'd be just fine, get more than enough. But he doesn't. He adopts us. He brings us in. He calls us sons. He gives us this relationship, this spirit, so we can call him father. And he could stop there and we would have more than enough. But he doesn't. He gives us his very spirit to guide us, to help us, to comfort us, to convict us, to, to help us and understand how we can live this life. And he could stop there, but he doesn't. He keeps going. In verse 7, we see that we are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, what? Then we are an heir through God. So not only have we been made right before God, not only have we been adopted into God's family, not only has he given us his spirit as a comforter and a convictor and a helper, but he promises us that we have an inheritance. He makes us heirs. And this is how Paul's going to wrap up this argument to the Galatians this morning. That you, as ones who have been brought out of captivity, redeemed, purchased, adopted, given the Spirit, as if that wasn't enough to make you think going back into your own ways was foolish, you have an inheritance that's far better than anything you could ever think of on this earth. How foolish for you to think that that orphanage is better than the family that you've been adopted to. 
And this begs the question, if we, if we know we have an inheritance, and as we learned last week, we're being prepared to receive this inheritance, it begs the question, what is an inheritance? What is a Christian's inheritance? What is it that we as followers of Christ, as sons of God, as heirs of him, what do we inherit? It's a great question. And I think you can look to the concept of inheritance in a worldly sense to kind of get at least a starting point. When you think of your own father, your own family, your own parents and grandparents, and the wealth that they accumulate, the businesses that they start, the homes that they have, the clothes that they have, the reputation that they have, when they pass and even before they pass, you, in a sense, are inheriting everything that that person has accomplished. And that's true for the good, but that's also true for the difficult. If you've got a father who didn't build up wealth, only built up debt, who didn't build up a good name for your family, actually made your family's name not good, you also inherit some of that as well. Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews 9, they all talk about this inheritance. In him we've obtained an inheritance, Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance, Hebrews 9, Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. So we know that there's some future aspect of this inheritance. But in the time being, we still know, just like if your father builds up a name for your family, while he's still living, you, in a sense, are inheriting some of that. And that's the case for us as Christians. Like We do inherit the good and the beautiful, and we'll get there. But we also inherit the difficult. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 2 Corinthians 1.5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 2 Timothy, If we endure, we will also reign with him. So there is this sense that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have inherited the suffering that Christ has had. And that shouldn't be foreign to us. I mean, the gospel that we hear in many prosperity churches today kind of avoids this concept that you just pray this prayer, you follow Jesus, and he's going to make your life nothing but sunshines and rainbows. Scripture is foreign to that. We are promised trials Suffering, hardships, persecution. That's what comes with being in the world, but not of the world. That's what comes with standing firm for truth in the midst of lies. That's what comes with holding firm to your convictions in a culture that is so debased and morally corrupt. That's what comes with bowing not to Caesar, but to Lord. That's what comes with following Christ. But it's difficult. It's not impossible. And we interpret these sufferings a little differently than the world might. We know that this suffering, these trials, these hardships that we face in life, they're actually preparing us to receive the full inheritance that we have after this life. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight 
of glory beyond all comparison. And James reminds us how we should interpret the situations and the trials we have. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're promised suffering, we're promised hardships, we're promised trials. That is part of the name of Christ that lives in this earth. We, we have to understand that as sons and daughters of Christ, we inherit that. But that is only preparing us for a far greater reality. We aren't hopeless in the midst of suffering. But, like I mentioned, we do inherit the difficult, but we also inherit, as I'm going to call it, the glorious The glorious, the inheritance that is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. You dream up your perfect Saturday. Go wherever you want, have whoever you want there, eat whatever you want, watch whatever you want. Your perfect Saturday. Nothing compared to the inheritance we have in God. Many people, when they talk about the inheritance and and our role in it, they pose the question, is God our inheritance or are we God's inheritance? I fall in the middle camp like most situations. I think both are true. We are God's inheritance for his work that he's done in this world, but also God is our inheritance. We treasure the giver, not just the gift. God himself is the greatest gift we could ever receive, and to spend eternity with him is all we could ever ask for. 1 Peter Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, kind of talk about this inheritance, the gloriousness of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the inheritance that we have, this this hope of a future reality of where there's no sin, no death, no corruption, no evil, no evil thoughts in your own life, no struggles that you have to wrestle with, no fear, no pain, no tears, We inherit all of it. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're called co-heirs with Christ. So think about this. If If Christ is God, if Jesus is God himself, creator of everything, owner of everything, if we are co-heirs with Christ, what does that mean? That means that we also inherit everything. And what a beautiful day it will be when we pass from this life to the next and enter into eternity forever and ever and ever with this as our greatest treasure. But as as ones who have an inheritance, we must ask the question, how is God preparing us for it? And as we've started to receive some of this inheritance in this life, how can we steward it and receive it and live it out in our lives today? 
And we learned a little bit last week that the trials and the hardships and the life that we have are helping us to be prepared to receive this full inheritance. And as I was asking this own question in my life, in preparation for this, I wondered what, what causes people who receive inheritances to waste them or foolishly use them or not steward them well? I mean, it's a common thing. You just look at wealthy individuals, business owners who have children who just ride their dad's coattails their whole life. Their dad passes away, they inherit millions. And oftentimes, that millions is wasted. They fall into sin, and their life goes to shambles. But why does that happen? What causes someone who's received such a great inheritance, even in an earthly sense, what causes them to waste it? Why would someone who watches their father work hard their whole life, live well, create good morals, have a good family, protect them and care for them and provide them with anything they could ever need, why would you, how could you possibly take that and waste it? It doesn't make sense. Well... I would argue it's similar to why so many people win the lottery and go bankrupt not long after. One, because when you receive something that you didn't do anything to earn, it's really difficult to fully grasp and understand and respect its value. If my dad spent his whole life building an empire, say my dad founded Facebook. I know you didn't, it's okay. Say my dad founded Facebook and built this empire and I did nothing in that process. I was just born and followed in his coattails. He passes away and I inherit all that comes with that. I didn't build it. I didn't bleed for it. I didn't sweat for it. I didn't cry for it. I do not know the suffering and sacrifice that my dad went through to get to that point. He knows the value of all of that wealth, all that he's accumulated, the home, the money, the clothes, everything that he's accumulated. He knows what it took to get there. But if I didn't play a part in that process, if I didn't help in any way, then it's difficult for me to fully grasp and understand and comprehend and respect its value. And when you don't respect something, when you don't see its value, you are very quick to waste it away. So that's, I think, one reason why People waste away their inheritance. Two, I think they just don't know the heart of their father and they don't continue his will for their life. So even if I might have contributed with the wealth or I watched him build this empire and I saw all that he was doing, like we learned last week, if I miss the heart and what his will is, I'm still going to waste it away. I'm going to miss the point. I might be able to replicate some of the practices that he does get business advice that I saw, replicate some of that, and maybe make it work for a little bit. But if I miss the heart, I'm going to waste the inheritance. So that's the second reason why I think people waste their inheritance. And then lastly, I think, honestly, they just lose sight of the treasure that they actually have. A few weeks ago, we heard of the illustration of the bank robber who robbed a bank for $1,000 with a gun that was worth $10,000. I think we do that often when we're considering what we have as sons of Christ. We look at the world around us, we see the shiny objects, we see the the health, the wealth, the happiness, all of the fun of people enjoying pleasure. And we think, man, that looks way more fun. We lose sight of the treasure that we have 
in Christ, the spirit that he's given us that cries, Abba, Father, the fact that we've been deemed right before him, the fact that we've been adopted into his family and called sons, the fact that he invites us into this loving, intimate relationship to call him Abba, Father, the fact that he gives us his spirit, and the fact that we have an even more glorious future hope than anything this world could offer. We just lose sight of that. And we're all guilty of this to some degree. The Galatians were full full believers. They were genuine Christians in Christ and they had started to become guilty of this. I think we just have to be honest with ourselves and constantly remind ourselves of all of these truths. The fact that we have been made right, adopted, given the Spirit, and we have an inheritance. We have to remind ourselves of that constantly throughout our Christian life. And not lose sight of the treasure that we have in that. Not lose hope. Not forget who you are and what God has done for you. I want to conclude our time this morning with uh, the passage in 1 John. So you can turn there with me if you want. I think I've got it on the screen. 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. First John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Don't lose sight of the treasure that you have. Don't lose sight of the beauty of being called a child of God. Don't look back to the ways of your your past, the ways of the world. And don't be fooled into thinking that those things are better than this treasure. And when you are tempted, remember what God has done for you. Remember that you were in slavery. You were enslaved in Egypt. After he's done all of this amazing stuff in your life and rescued you out of it, why would you for a second think that going back is the best thing to do. Don't be fooled. We are sons of God, and because we are sons, we are heirs. And this is a glorious truth that we need to know and live by every single day. You are a child of God. Do not forget that. Let's pray.